Chapter thirty one, part one of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter thirty one Invasion of Italy, Occupation of Territories by Barbarians. Part one. Invasion of Italy by Alaric, Manners of the Roman Senate and People, Rome is thrice besieged and at length pillaged by the Goths, Death of Alaric, The Goths evacuate Italy, Fall of Constantine, Gaul and Spain are occupied by the barbarians, Independence of Britain. The incapacity of a weak and distracted government may often assume the appearance and produce the effects of a treasonable correspondence with the public enemy. If Alaric himself had been introduced into the council of Ravenna, he would probably have advised the same measures which were actually pursued by the ministers of Honorius. The king of the Goths would have conspired, perhaps with some reluctance, to destroy the formidable adversary, by whose arms in Italy, as well as in Greece, he had been twice overthrown. Their active and interested hatred laboriously accomplished the disgrace and ruin of the great Stilicho. The valour of Sarus, his fame in arms, and his personal or hereditary influence over the confederate barbarians, could recommend him only to the friends of their country, who despised or detested the worthless characters of Topilio, Varanes, and Vigilantius. By the pressing insistences of the new favourites, these generals, unworthy as they had shown themselves of the name of soldiers, were promoted to the command of the cavalry, of the infantry, and of the domestic troops. The Gothic prince would have subscribed with pleasure the edict which the fanaticism of Olympius dictated to the simple and devout emperor. Honorus excluded all persons, who were adverse to the Catholic Church, from holding any office in the state, obstinately rejected the service of all those who dissented from his religion, and rashly disqualified many of his bravest and most skilful officers who adhered to the pagan worship, or who had imbibed the opinions of Arianism. These measures, so advantageous to an enemy, Alaric would have approved, and might perhaps have suggested but it may seem doubtful whether the barbarian would have promoted his interest at the expense of the inhuman and absurd cruelty which was perpetrated by the direction, or at least with the connivance of the imperial ministers. The foreign auxiliaries, who had been attached to the person of Stilicho, lamented his death, but the desire of revenge was checked by a natural apprehension for the safety of their wives and children who were detained as hostages in the strong cities of Italy, where they had likewise deposited their most valuable effects. At the same hour, and as if by a common signal, the cities of Italy were polluted by the same horrible scenes of universal massacre and pillage, which involved, in promiscuous destruction, the families and fortunes of the barbarians. Exasperated by such an injury, which might have awakened the tamest and most servile spirit, 
they cast a look of indignation and hope towards the camp of Alaric, and unanimously swore to pursue, with just and implicable war, the perfidious nation who had so basely violated the laws of hospitality. By the impudent conduct of the ministers of Honorius, the Republic lost the assistance, and deserved the enmity of thirty thousand of her bravest soldiers, and the weight of that formidable army, which alone might have determined the event of the war, was transferred from the scale of the Romans into that of the Goths. In the arts of negotiation, as well as in those of war, the Gothic king maintained his superior ascendant over an enemy, whose seeming changes proceeded from the total want of counsel and design. From his camp, on the confines of Italy, Alaric attentively observed the revolutions of the palace, watched the progress of faction and discontent, disguised the hostile aspect of a barbarian invader, and assumed the more popular appearance of the friend and ally of the great Silico, to whose virtues, when they were no longer formidable, he could pay a just tribute of sincere praise and regret. The pressing invitation of the malcontents, who urged the king of the Goths to invade Italy, was enforced by a lively sense of his personal injuries, and he might especially complain that the imperial minister still delayed and eluded the payment of the four thousand pounds of gold which had been granted by the Roman Senate, either to reward his services or to appease his fury. His descent firmness was supported by an artful moderation, which contributed to the success of his designs. He required a fair and reasonable satisfaction, but he gave the strongest assurances that, as soon as he had obtained it, he would immediately retire. He refused to trust the faith of the Romans, unless Atias and Jason, the sons of two great officers of state, were sent as hostages to his camp but he offered to deliver, in exchange, several of the noblest youth of the Gothic nation. The modesty of Alaric was interpreted by the ministers of Ravenna as a sure evidence of his weakness and fear. They disdained either to negotiate a treaty or to assemble an army, and with a rash confidence derived only from their ignorance of the extreme danger, irretrievably wasted the decisive moments of peace and war. While they expected, in sullen silence, that the barbarians would evacuate the confines of Italy, Alaric, with bold and rapid marches, passed the Alps and the Po, hastily pillaged the cities of Aquilia, Altinium, Concordia, and Cremonia, which yielded to his arms, increased his forces by the ascension of thirty thousand auxiliaries, and, without meeting a single enemy in the field, advanced as far as the edge of the morass, which protected the impregnable residence of the Emperor of the West. Instead of attempting the hopeless siege of Ravenna, the prudent leader of the Goths proceeded to Rimani, stretched his ravages along the sea-coast of the Hadriatic, and meditated the conquest of the ancient mistress of the world. An Italian hermit, whose zeal and sanctity were respected by the barbarians themselves, encountered the victorious monarch, and boldly denounced the indignation of heaven against the oppressors of the earth. But the saint himself was confounded by the solemn asseveration of Alaric, 
that he felt a secret and preternatural impulse, which directed, and even compelled, his march to the gates of Rome. He felt that his genius and his fortune were equal to the most arduous enterprises, and the enthusiasm which he communicated to the Goths insensibly removed the popular and almost superstitious reverence of the nations for the majesty of the Roman name. His troops, animated by the hopes of spoil, followed the course of the Flaminian Way, occupied the unguarded passes of the Apennine, descended into the rich plains of Umbria, and, as they lay encamped on the banks of the Clitumnus, might wantonly slaughter and devour the milk-white oxen, which had been so long reserved for the use of Roman triumphs. A lofty situation and a seasonable tempest of thunder and lightning preserved the little city of Nani, but the king of the Goths, despising the ignoble prey, still advanced with unbated vigour, and after he had passed through the stately arches, adorned with the spoils of barbaric victories, he pitched his camp under the walls of Rome. During a period of six hundred and nineteen years, the seat of empire had never been violated by the presence of a foreign enemy. The unsuccessful expedition of Hannibal served only to display the character of the senate and people, of a senate degraded rather than ennobled, by the comparison of an assembly of kings, and of a people to whom the ambassador of Pyrrhus ascribed the inexhaustible resources of the Hydra. Each of the senators, in the time of the Punic War, had accomplished his term of the military service, either in a subordinate or a superior station, and the decree which invested with temporary command all those who had been consuls, or censures, or dictators, gave the Republic the immediate assistance of many brave and experienced generals. In the beginning of the war, the Roman people consisted of two hundred and fifty thousand citizens of an age to bear arms. Fifty thousand had already died in the defence of their country, and the twenty-three legions which were employed in the different camps of Italy, Greece, Sardinia, Sicily, and Spain, required about one hundred thousand men. But there still remained an equal number in Rome, and the adjacent territory, who were animated by the same intrepid courage, and every citizen was trained, from his earliest youth, in the discipline and exercises of a soldier. Hannibal was astonished by the consistency of the Senate, who, without raising the siege of Capua, or recalling their scattered forces, expected his approach. He encamped on the banks of the Anio, at the distance of three miles from the city, and he was soon informed that the ground on which he had pitched his tent was sold for an adequate price at a public auction, and that a body of troops was dismissed by an opposite road to reinforce the legions of Spain. He led his Africans to the gates of Rome, where he found three armies in order of battle prepared to receive him. But Hannibal dreaded the event of a combat, for which he could not hope to escape unless he destroyed the last of his enemies, and his speedy retreat confessed the invincible courage of the Romans. From the time of the Punic War, the uninterrupted succession of senators had preserved the name and image of the Republic, 
and the degenerate subjects of Honorius, ambitiously derived their descent from the heroes who had repulsed the arms of Hannibal, and subdued the nations of the earth. The temporal honours which the devout Paula inherited and despised are carefully recapitulated by Jerome, the guide of her conscience, and the historian of her life. The genealogy of her father, Rogatus, who ascended as high as Agamemnon, might seem to betray a Grecian origin. But her mother, Belicia, numbered the Scipius, Aemilius Paulius, and the Gracchi, in the list of her ancestors. Antoxateus, the husband of Paula, deduced his royal lineage from Aeneas, the father of the Julian line. The vanity of the rich, who desired to be noble, was gratified by these lofty pretensions. Encouraged by the applause of their parasites, they equally imposed on the credulity of the vulgar, and were countenanced, in some measure, by the custom of adopting the name of their patron, which had always prevailed among the freedmen and clients of illustrious families. Most of those families, attacked by so many causes of external violence or internal decay, were gradually extirpated, and it would be more reasonable to seek for a lineal descent of twenty generations among the mountains of the Alps, or in the peaceful solitude of Apollia, than on the theatre of Rome, the seat of fortune, of danger, and of perpetual revolutions. Under each successive reign, and from every province of the empire, a crowd of hardy adventurers, rising to eminence by their talents or their vices, usurped the wealth, the honours, and the palaces of Rome, and oppressed or protected the poor and humble remains of consular families, who were ignorant, perhaps, of the glory of their ancestors. In the time of Jerome and Claudian, the senators unanimously yielded the preeminence to the Anician line, and a slight view of their history will serve to appreciate the rank and antiquity of the noble families, which contended only for the second place. During the first five ages of the city, the name of the Anicians was unknown. They appeared to have derived their origin from Prianesti, and the ambition of those new citizens was long satisfied with the plebeian honours of tribunes of the people. One hundred and sixty-eight years before the Christian era, the family was ennobled by the praetorship of Anicius, who gloriously terminated the Illyrian war by the conquest of the nation and the captivity of their king. From the triumph of that general, three consulships, in distant periods, mark the succession of the Anician name. From the reign of Diocletian to the final extinction of the Western Empire, that name shone with a lustre which was not eclipsed, in the public estimation, by the majesty of the imperial purple. The several branches to whom it was communicated, united by marriage or inheritance, the wealth and titles of the Aeneian, the Praetorian, and the Alibrian houses. And, in each generation, the number of consulships was multiplied by an hereditary claim. The Anicean family excelled in faith and in riches. They were the first of the Roman Senate who embraced Christianity. And it is probable that Anicius Julian, who was afterwards consul and prefect of the city, atoned for his attachment to the party of Maxentius 
by the readiness with which he accepted the religion of Constantine. Their ample patrimony was increased by the industry of Probus, the chief of the Anician family, who shared with Gratian the honours of the consulship, and exercised four times the high office of the Praetorian prefect. His immense estates were scattered over the wide extent of the Roman world, and though the public might suspect or disapprove the methods by which they had been acquired, the generosity and magnificence of that fortunate statesman deserved the gratitude of his clients and the admiration of strangers. Such was the respect entertained for his memory, that the two sons of Probus, in their earliest youth, and at the request of the Senate, were associated in the consular dignity, a memorable distinction, without example, in the annals of Rome. End of chapter 31, part 1